No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer. And this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Happy Pride Month. June is LGBTQIA Awareness Month. And so this month, we are going to be highlighting specific issues around sexual assault and domestic violence and how they impact the LGBTQIA community. We have some great interviews with organizations that are doing hard work in support of the community, and we want to be sure that this month is about affirming No Gray Zone's allyship and commitment to confronting the barriers to reporting and to stop violence against the LGBTQIA community. Pride Month is a time to recognize and celebrate the accomplishments of our LGBTQIA community. But it's also a time to reflect and recognize the change that still needs to happen. And look, we're not here to bash any particular organization and accuse anybody of being anti-LGBTQIA+, without first turning the mirror on the criminal justice system. So in that spirit, we wanted to be transparent about some of the failures of the criminal justice system to effectively respond to the LGBTQIA survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual abuse. And it's something that we wrote about for our monthly article in the Authentic Insider magazine. So we hope you check it out. But what struck us is one of the most staggering statistics we wrote about, the high rate of sexual violence. The CDC's National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey found that for the LGBTQIA identifying individuals, 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. Compare that to 35% of straight women. In addition, 26% of gay men and 37% of bisexual men experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner when compared to 29% of straight men. And the numbers of sexual assault in the trans community is just as high. According to a 2015 U.S. transgender survey, it found that about 47% of individuals who identified as transgendered were sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. And even with those alarmingly high rates, we know that reports of sexual assault and intimate partner violence by members of the LGBTQIA community are really low. And this is directly correlated to a lack of understanding and increased bias by both law enforcement and prosecutors. This includes perpetuating stereotypes and rape myths. A 2018 study reported in the Journal of Homosexuality reported that bisexual women are blamed for their own assaults at higher rates than lesbian women are blamed. For not stopping their own assault because 
Well, they should have known better. And it's clear that rape myths exist in the size gender community and that those rape myths extend to the LGBTQIA community. But what doesn't extend is the proper response. Now, trauma-informed response, and we've talked a lot about that on this podcast uh, and training regarding sexual assault, intimate partner violence, you know, it's, it's becoming a growing trend in the U.S. But what the problem is, is that those types of trainings are still geared towards size, gender, and female gendered community. And they don't really uh, take into account that there are many different types of people and identifying people who, who are victims of sexual violence. There is not a significant body of training done to ensure inclusivity and to ensure a proper trauma-informed response to members of the LGBTQIA community. And that is something that really needs to change. And that's why we need to talk about this issue well beyond June. And we need to advocate for increased federal and state funding needed to develop, implement, and evaluate programs for the LGBTQIA plus community. There needs to be programming to ensure that we as law enforcement and prosecutors get it right and that survivors, no matter their identity, can get justice, be treated equally, and be treated fundamentally with respect. Absolutely. Catherine is right. Everyone deserves to be treated at a baseline with respect. And so we have a lot of work to do as law enforcement, as prosecutors in the space of helping the LGBTQIA community and to helping survivors feel that they can report. But when we're talking about these issues, we should also talk about the increased violence to the community based upon what we call the panic defense. Listen, We need to be clear from the start that we do not believe that this is a legitimate defense. And that's supported by the ABA and their LGBTQ subcommittee. The gay trans panic defense is not an affirmative legal defense. It's a tactic uh, used to strengthen the defense by playing on society's prejudice. It's used not only to explain a defendant's actions, but to excuse them as well. The basic principle of the gay panic defense is that the perpetrator or criminal defendant acted violently by committing an assault or a murder because of an unwanted same-sex sexual advance that was perpetrated against them. And just like we've talked about tactics of defense attorneys to play on rape myths, which we've talked about at length when it comes to sexual assault, this defense, which, you know, as Catherine said, we do not believe is legitimate, no different. And there are three ways that we typically see this type of defense play out. So the first one is this defense of insanity. And that's when the defendant alleges that because of the sexual proposition by the victim um, and the victim who, who due to their sexual orientation or gender identity came on to them or, you know, proposed some uh, sexual act to them, it triggered them to have a nervous breakdown and that they were insane at the time that they either caused this assault or murdered the victim. So that's the first way that we see this defense. You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes right now. The second way is the defense of provocation. So the defense will say that the defendant, the victim's proposition, which is sometimes termed a nonviolent sexual advance, was sufficiently provocative to induce the, the, the defendant to kill or severely injure the victim, right? So merely suggesting that someone engaged in a sexual act with you was enough to just send this defense uh, defendant into, into a tizzy to uh, justify the murder or assault of the victim. 
Or of course you have the last one, which I think is the most commonly used that you see. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Some of the examples that we have is this defense of self-defense. And the defendant will claim that they believe the victim because of their sexual orientation or gender identity was about to cause them serious bodily harm or to rape them. And that in self-defense, they then killed. And so we see these defenses uh, play out time and time again. And they're really just about playing on misconceptions about the LGBTQIA plus community, about prejudices that still exist in, in our country. And we need to stop them. Exactly. As Melissa said, they've played out time and time again, and it's not theory. This actually happens in the courtroom. In 1995, Jonathan Schmitz was invited onto the Jenny Jones talk show. He was unaware that his friend Scott was also there and would confess his attraction to him. Schmitz was embarrassed and asserted that he was completely heterosexual. Three days after that show, Schmitz drove to his friend Scott's home and he shot and killed him. At trial, Schmitz argued that he suffered from diminished capacity due to the gay panic disorder he experienced when Scott revealed his attraction on the Jenny Jones show, which then rendered him unable to plan the killing despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. The jury bought it. They reduced the charge from premeditated murder to second degree murder. And I think just to understand like how ludicrous this defense is, flip the script Imagine it was a female friend on the talk show who confessed her attraction to Jonathan, which he then dwelled on for three days, acquired a gun, loaded the gun, drove to her house, shot and killed her. Who would think that wasn't premeditated? And you would think that we've come a long way since 1995, and we certainly have, but uh, this defense continues to be prevalent in, in our criminal justice system. Just in September of 2015, Daniel Spencer was stabbed and murdered by his neighbor, Robert Miller. And Miller claimed that he rejected a sexual advance from um, Spencer and then acted in self-defense when Spencer became agitated, even though physical evidence disproved this claim of self-defense. It didn't matter. He was never in danger. That's what the prosecution argued. But the jury didn't buy it. The jury bought this gay panic defense and Miller's conviction was mitigated from murder to criminally negligent homicide. And these are just a few of the cases involving this gay panic defense, which preys on the prejudice of our society and the prejudice of our juries. Consent is a universal concept that is not based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or race. And acts of violence need to be treated universally as well. So we need to invest in training and education for law enforcement and prosecutors. We need to invest in educating our community, our families, and our friends to help end these bogus defenses and ensure that people who commit hate crimes are held accountable. Absolutely. We need to call it what it is and we need to hold these people accountable. Well, that's all the time we have this week. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a five-star review. And you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. And tune in for our conversation next week with Jennifer Dane, the CEO of Modern Military Association of America, whom we'll discuss LGBTQIA plus community issues in the military. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to supporting the LGBTQIA plus community. Thank you for listening. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm 
I'm just good at caring too much.